0: Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello, hello, hello. Finally, it is May 1st, May Day, May Day, May Day. And uh, I'm in one of those situations, it being 10 a.m. on May 1st, Eastern Daylight Time, um, where... I've got some pretty stiff competition in uh, the fact that Attorney General Barr is uh, supposed to be at this very moment beginning his testimony before a House committee. I'm blanking on which one. Um, And this could be uh, pretty incendiary given the breaking news last night. that I believe it was the Washington Post that broke it. I read the Times account and they didn't have anywhere near they clearly hadn't seen the specific letter. Um, Turns out the special counsel Robert Mueller was upset clearly about how Barr characterized the report and He found it uh, misleading, clearly, and he informed him of that. And after he'd been informed of that by Mueller, he did appear before Congress, and when asked if uh, Mueller agreed with his characterization of the report, he said, I don't know. Isn't that like perjury? He did know. He was upset. Muller, the letter says the summary letter, in other words, his famous four-page misleading memo, Muller writes, the summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context nature and substance of this office's work and conclusions. Now, that's this very diffident uh, straight shooting uh, controversy avoiding Mueller essentially saying in his placid manner you friggin didn't Tell the truth about what's in the report. What are you doing? You took it out of context. You underplayed stuff. You did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of my work, is what he's telling him. And then he says, and there are consequences. There is now, wrote Mill- Muller to him, there is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. So quite clearly, Mueller, and it is clear even from the redacted version, Mueller was not saying Trump did not uh did not um attempt to subvert the investigation. He did. He simply was saying that because of this Justice Department, I mean, what's it called? It's not a law. This Justice Department idea that a sitting president can't be indicted tied Mueller's hands, but he clearly, without that, was saying, I mean, Uh, here we have an instance, here we have an instance, here we have another instance. So the fact that Barr actually said to Congress that Mueller had not reached a conclusion about whether Trump had tried to obstruct justice is not true. He clearly, in the report, says a number of times this was obstruction. This was an attempted obstruction. So day, it was just days after uh, Barr started his grand scheme to mislead uh, the nation and establish a narrative um, that downplayed the results of the special counsel's investigation, uh, Mueller wrote this uh, private letter. And you know, when these guys put, do stuff like that, private letter, put it in writing, they are creating uh, a record. The Washington Post r- reporting on this says that when the letter came to the Justice Department it shocked senior department officials. I don't know why. So it's interesting, interesting isn't it, Rosenstein decamps. What was that yesterday? He announced his retirement, and I'm wondering if, you know, he obviously knows about this letter. He knows Barr's about to be grilled. He knows there are already, you know, talks about uh, Barr should step down. Mueller will be called. This thing is just, oh, my God. And in, um, in his letter, Mueller also asks that the Attorney General release all of the stuff that the special counsel had written, his introductions to the sections, his summaries, um, and the letter even went on to say, look, if you think that this might should be redacted or that, you know, I understand that. Post reporting, again, Justice Department officials said yesterday they were taken aback by the tone of Mueller's letter. And, you know, I read it, and it sounds very, uh, the tone sounds absolutely unemotional to me. But knowing Mueller, this is an angry letter. So when we initially heard that certain members of his team were upset, we now know that he was upset about the Attorney General's misleading of all of us and his efforts to create a false narrative of the two years of work that Muller and his team had had done. These guys are friends? <laughs> I don't know. So just I want to pull uh, back and and uh do some um Additions to subjects that came up on yesterday's program, I was noting you know the measles um, resurgence and outbreak in the United States, and the twenty two states had had known uh, records of uh, measles cases, and I had said to my sister, "But you know you're in Wisconsin, there's no reports there, and I'm here in Pennsylvania, no reports here. Well, that's not true anymore. Um, little did I know that there, in fact, has been a r- measles case, um, and the guy who has the measles is an adult who had um, traveled abroad and then um, ended up at Shadyside um, ER. The Problem is, is that they asked the guy, where have you been? <laughs> so we can alert people who might have, you know, con- come in contact in some way with you. And unbelievably, where he'd been is where I'd been, too. He'd been to the Giant Eagle Market District late Friday afternoon. And he'd been to the Aldi's on center, and, um, I mean, I'm not worried. I am, I'm immune. Um, but that's, you know, discomforting. So we uh, now do have a, a case of measles. And if he was in those places and other people who did not have the kind of protection I have were there at Giant Eagle or at Aldi's when he was there, Uh, there could well be other cases because it is that contagious a disease. And the health department is actually telling people here, look, it doesn't come on for two to three weeks. It's amazing, it has that long, it just sits there in you for a while and then... and they listed the symptoms and said, "If you have these symptoms, do not go to your doctor's office. Do not go to one of these, you know, little clinics that you can walk into. Do not go. Simply call your doctor. This is how it spreads. They're telling anyone who might come down with the symptoms to stay put, but alert." doctors that you fear you may have it so that's what's happening here now Um, I have just a a few little things here if anybody by the way is um, watching uh, the bar hearings and sort of has me on in the background or something and anything really good happens feel free to feel free to keep me in the loop um, a few things that didn't see the light of day, um, certainly on my show and on a lot of others, that I think uh, deserve a little attention. This one, the uh, Trump finally um, honored a all-female uh, championship team the other day. Um, he has passed on doing that in, in the past. And um, the team was the Baylor women's basketball team who um, who won their third national uh, title. They, it, they beat Notre Dame in an extraordinarily good game. I happened to see part of it. And there are pictures of the president sitting at his desk in the Oval Office, surrounded by the Baylor team, which is um, obviously all women, and many of them, most of them, black. And they look... (laughs) They look uncomfortable, unhappy... There is not a smile on one face. It is not the normal picture that one would see in this case. They look uncomfortable as hell. I mean, it's startling. He's sort of trying to yuck it up. At one point, he asked the coach hey, you want to come and work in my White House? And she said, no. (laughs) No. Uh, Yeah. Somebody posted a picture of the Baylor team with another president, President Obama, in a better time when he had them to the White House. And my God, the contrast in these pictures is extraordinary. Sometimes a picture does, you know, tell the story. In this case, a juxtaposition of, of two pictures. They looked so happy they look so comfortable with this president, Obama. They look so miserable standing around Donald Trump. Uh, a story that the Times had yesterday that's just enraging. They. It's it's something that we all know but we forget, I think. And when you see it printed out um this being May 1st after April 15th and we've all paid our taxes and knowing that somebody who makes you know $30,000 a year or $18,000 a year pays taxes And Amazon not only doesn't pay any taxes, but it actually gets a rebate. Amazon made $10 billion dollars last year, and paid not a penny in taxes. That's just one, but that's the biggest, of course, because it is the biggest. And there is a graph of all of these huge corporations which make billions of dollars. These are all billions, billions, billions. And they, unlike you, did not write a check to any governmental entity. In fact, they got checks. there is no possible (laughs) good reason that that is the reality. None. None. And you need look no farther to know that our government is corrupted, that the people who support the government are the little people who are always being squeezed, that tax laws are written to not only benefit the richest, but to release them of any obligation. So the New York Times posted this graphic And they said these are the 30 most profitable companies that paid no federal income tax in 2018. And in many cases, the companies actually received tax rebates. And those rebates can then be used to reduce their tax burdens or wipe them out altogether. The law is written to give them this free pass. You know, and I was thinking of this yesterday and thinking as I drove in Pittsburgh, past all the hospitals and the universities and the churches and thinking they don't pay. They sit on so much of this real estate, and they've got so much. They don't pay. And then you drive through a poor neighborhood. This is where the people who pay live. (laughs) What possible defense There be? And how are we not at some point going to tear this down? Here are the companies the 30 most profitable companies. Not one, you paid more. You paid more than Amazon. You! (laughs) You paid more than Delta Airlines. You paid more taxes than Chevron that made 5 billion bucks last year and got a tax rebate. You paid more than General Motors if you paid even a buck. And I'm looking at these and there's all these power companies. There's Prudential Financial there's First Energy, Excel Energy, WEC Energy, Devon Energy, Pioneer Natural Resources, Halliburton. Goose eggs. What they paid. <laughs> Extraordinary. Kristen says, "Don't bother listening to the bar testimony. The first ten minutes has been Graham, oh, going on and on and on about the Hillary Clinton investigation. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm so glad I'm not listening to that. I mean, I'm elevating my blood pressure with this corporate, uh, you know, these c- corporate free riders." Lindsey Graham. And Barbara reports the same thing. Lindsey Graham is opening talking about Clinton emails. Wow. And Lou reports, Graham is reading FBI agents' love letters joking about Trump. He's saying, "Let me tell you what the Clinton people did. We're going to look at the Clinton." Oh God." I didn't realize this is a Senate hearing, so the Democrats are not in control. No. Regarding measles, little Tony says, Lynn, you're not alone. This guy who had the measles t- chose to shop at the two stores that I shop at. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Not at the same time, but still, I coincided with him. I don't know if it was exact, but as I said, I'm." Uh, and little Tony says, I'm in my late 50s and was vaccinated when I was a kid. I still am keeping my fingers crossed. Well, I read somewhere that... <coughs> People who got, you know, who were born between this period and that period, old people like me, we are almost all of us secure. And the reason being, we got the measles. There was no vaccine. And there's no greater uh, immunization than having survived it. So. Those of you who got vaccinated um, later, you might need a booster. Just saying. I mean, I think if I were you, I would look into that. I don't know. Oh, my, 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 my. Okay, also, something that was talked about earlier in the week was the just breathtaking uh, anti-Semitic cartoon that was printed in the International Edition of the New York Times for which the Times apologized and then took down. They, that didn't do it for an awful lot of pe- people, including their own uh, op-ed guy, Brett Stevens, who wrote a scathing piece uh, a day ago or two days ago. And the Times has now stepped up and um, has a large opinion piece, uh, headlined The Rising Tide of Anti-Semitism. Um, and in part they say this, The appearance of such an obviously bigoted cartoon in a mainstream publication is evidence of a profound danger. A danger not only of anti-Semitism, but of numbness to its creep. To the insidious way this ancient, enduring prejudice is once again working itself into public view and common conversation. It goes on to say, for decades most American Jews felt safe to practice their religion, but now they pass through metal detectors to enter their synagogues and schools. Jews face even greater hostility and danger in Europe where the cartoon was created. It was a Portuguese cartoonist who did it. They point out about uh, the obvious rise of anti-Semitism in Great Britain and the defection of a number of members of the Labor Party um, who have uh, said they left the party because it became institutionally anti-Semitic. So this was a, um, you know, when you hear anti-Semitism, what is particularly troubling to any Jew who's paying attention, and believe me, a lot of Jews are. The anti-Semitism that is now rearing its ugly head again is coming at Jews from not just the right but also from the left. Something that a lot of left people simply refuse to own. And... The Times talks about that as well in its editorial, talking about um, anti-Israel feeling, growing, and much of it because of the right-wing government of Netanyahu there. And as you know, many, many Jews, and many Israelis for that matter, do not support that government, Netanyahu's government. But the Times says, and this again is what so many on the left refuse to acknowledge, the Times says anti Semitism can clearly serve as a cover for anti Semitism. And some criticism of Israel as that cartoon, which was <laughs> looked like it came out of, you know, Der Sturmer that cartoon uh, demonstrated is couched openly in anti-Jewish tropes. A few more lines from the Times piece. History teaches that the rise of extremism like this requires the acquiescence of broader society, the silence of good people, the tut-tutting and refusal to acknowledge the virus growing even among our own acquaintances and friends, our political buddies. The Times says a particularly frightening aspect of the rise of anti-Semitism in recent years is that it has come from both the right and left sides of the political spectrum. Both right-wing and left-wing politicians have traded in incendiary anti-Semitic tropes like the ideas that Jews secretly control the financial system or politicians And then they say the thing that I was trying to say the other day. Society in recent years has shown healthy signs of increased sensitivity to other forms of bigotry. Yet somehow, anti-Semitism is often just dismissed. And that was the thing I was trying to say because I think Jews look to be doing just fine. But that's what they looked like, as I said, in Germany in the 30s and in Spain in 1490 and all those other places that all of a sudden, bang, turned on them. The Times also points out that it, Um, was part of the uh, turning away from reality uh, in the 30s and 40s and that it did not um, see and adequately report the threat of what was happening to the Jews of Europe. It says here, in the 30s and 40s, the Times was largely silent Anti Semitism rose and bathed the world in blood. That failure still haunts this newspaper. Well, There's been so much that's happened in the last few years that I just shake my head and say, I can't believe I'm seeing this. I can't believe I'm seeing this. And I have to tell you, the level of anti-Semitism is frightening to anyone who knows history. Riding the bus down here today, I'm scrolling around through Twitter, and I see this thing where an artist is proudly showing off an anti-Semitic picture, a painting he's done, that he says, I did this for a group show at a gallery in Romania. And the picture is a picture, it's titled The Investor. And it shows George Soros, Jew, standing in front of an American flag that is tattered, at the bottom and Soros is fanning out tons of Benjamins. So here is the Jew, the powerful Jews messing with the America's government and also um, you know the Jew as money, the money bags. and. I looked up who this guy was, John McNaughton. And then I, saw, I looked at his Twitter account and another one of his paintings I had just seen the other day. It's a painting of Trump on a motorcycle. And it, this guy is a Trump lover. And Trump loves him, too. He's done portraits of the president, and here is one of Donald Trump's favorite artists proudly showing off a blatantly anti-Semitic masterpiece that he is showing at a uh, at an exhibition in Europe, Romania. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so speaking of history, (laughs) you know, knowing our history is really important to staying alive. And I want to share with you this wonderful thing I don't know if you know who Virginia Montanez is Uh, she also uh, she tweets as um, what pit girl she has written and maybe still does for Pittsburgh magazine she is uh, really a highly influential uh, social media person and by all accounts a really wonderful person does a lot of charitable work um... and she tweeted something today in which um, she said that she has gone back to school to uh, study to get a degree in history and in learning about history she's come upon Well, I'll just give you the tweet. A fun thing about returning to school for my history degree is exploring primary sources. And what she's done is she looked into the declarations that all of the Confederate states put out for why they were seceding from the United States of America. So these are secession declarations uh, from 1861, put out by various states, and she went directly to them and was looking at the the reasons that these states were giving for pulling out of the union, and it's breathtaking for all those people in the South who still refuse to acknowledge what that war was about, it is so clear in here, the states clearly said what it was. It's all about slavery. She said the word slavery is their constant, it's not saying states' rights, it was about their ability to keep their slaves. Now, in the second sentence, the Mississippi Secession Declaration says this, second sentence, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Georgia's declaration of secession, she says, used the word slave 35 times. And their their second sentence, Georgia's, is this. For the last 10 years, we have had numerous and serious causes of complaint against our non-slave-holding states with reference to the subject of African slavery. South Carolina secession thing shows that they were enraged that northern states were not returning escaped slaves and that they were encouraging and assisting, quote, thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. And those who remain have been incited by books and pictures to insurrection. And Texas. Texas is so appalling that I can't even, I I will read just a little bit from Texas. And you think that racism is not in the bones and blood of this country. Here is the Texas secession announcement. We hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and of the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity. That the African race had no agency in their establishment that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, and in that condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable. That's the statement of Texas, flat out saying that the only good of having these people here it would be intolerable to have them here if they were not being used to, to create our wealth that they are an inferior race and they had no They give them no credit. I. You know, the more you know about our history, the harder it gets to be an unabashed, you know, flag waver. Seriously. And the fact that this long, its it, I'm talking about stuff that emanated from state legislatures in 1861 that led to a bloodbath, Civil War. And it's now 2019. And I'd say a good, probably more than half the country still will not acknowledge where we've been, where what we've come from, and what we have yet to adequately address in any way. hey, did you see it? A cop finally got convicted of murder. Did you see that? Yeah. Got convicted of murder for shooting an unarmed person. But here's the thing. The cop, it turns out, the cop is a black cop who shot a white woman. Now, black cops who shoot white women, they don't get off. White cops who shoot black women, black men, black children, they get off. They even get off if there's body cam footage of them doing it where they're shooting these kids in the back, right? So what does it take to finally get a jury to say, why, that's murder? Why, a black cop who shot a white woman. This is the case out of Minneapolis, a horrific case, where this woman who was going to be married in a few weeks, was gunned down in an alley. She, I believe, had called the police. There's no video. There's no audio evidence. There's nothing. The officer who shot her couldn't really see what he was shooting at. It was a shadowy figure coming at him. He panicked and shot One shot. He killed her. The other thing about this cop who got convicted of murder is going to go to jail. Is that he's not only black, his name is Mohammed Noor. He's a Muslim black. No other Minnesota officer has been convicted in a fatal on-duty shooting before. But see, they weren't black Muslim police officers. And, in fact, this guy's an immigrant from Somalia. And just another quick thing, which I've been holding onto, it's another cop shooting. shooting. This one happened uh, right near Yale University. You might have heard about it but it is particularly it's just mind blowing. And this one there is video. And it's just a cold-blooded I mean the amazing thing is and thank God for it. No one died in this one. Amazing because 20 shots were fired. This one black muslim shot one one bullet and killed. These white cops at Yale They shot, they were shooting from every direction at this dreadlock-wearing black man, and they didn't kill him. Thank God. The footage from the police body cameras shows an officer drawing his gun as he approaches this red Honda Civic which has been stopped. A black man is seen getting out of the car and raising his hands in the air and almost instantly the guns go off. So, next time a black guy gets shot for running, you folks who always say, Well, why didn't they just follow the orders of the police officer? Which is exactly what this guy was doing. He was being told, Get out of the car with your hands up. He did. He is one lucky son of a gun. He is alive. The guy who was shot is 21 years old. His passenger also was shot. She was 22 years old. They had done nothing. They had no weapons. They had cre- committed no crime, no speeding violation. I want to bring up. I'm not thrilled that uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are the running one, two, three in Iowa. But as I said yesterday, this is a year and a half before the event. We got two old white guys battling it out one representing pretty much much establishment democratic politics, that would be v- Biden, and the other representing uh, a socialist point of view, um, I suspect, we would say. Um, and The Times has pointed out how the two of them are operating very differently. At this point, uh, Biden is refusing to say anything negative about any other Democratic candidate. And in fact, he's openly saying that there's really not a lot of huge policy differences between any of us, he says. Bernie? Bernie? Bernie is doing exactly what he did with Hillary. He has come out swinging and he's taking on Biden and trying to, you know, whittle him down. He voted for this, he voted for that, he voted for this. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And you know what? Um, Iowa... Voters asked about this have not reacted well. They don't like it. Well, I'll do a quote. I don't think it's helpful. This guy is one of the Democrats, um, former Iowa che- Democratic chairman. He says, I just don't think it's helpful for uh, the senator from Vermont to go after another Democrat, to go, well, he says, to go after a combatant from the same army. At this point, he's saying, why is he attacking a fellow Democrat right now? Well, you could argue, well, he is, because the race he's in now is for the Democratic nomination. And so he's trying to, you know, define himself in a positive way um, against the front runner, because that's what Biden is. Um but the fact is, Sanders clearly has no feelings of wanting to unify the Democrats. He has not, That is not part nor parcel of any aspect of his campaign this time or his campaign last time. The reason being, number one, he is not a Democrat. And also, well, I'm not going to get into his ego because all these people have big egos. I mean, I have made clear that I am no fan of Bernie. None. I really do not like him. And I think he'd be a disaster. But I will vote for him if he is the candidate. I don't think there's any way in hell he's going to be. But I'll tell you one other thing. If you think the Russians ain't being helpful to him, you're You're extraordinarily naïve. I'm sure those Russians are actively working uh, already. Yeah, on Bernie's behalf as they did last time around. And I don't think he's ever adequately acknowledged that. He seems to react to that the same way Trump does. He doesn't want to hear about it. Oh, boy, the science section, and this dovetails with what I have been saying to you before, too. These things are killing us. They're shortening our lives. It's like, you know, when you see people standing around all like this, it's... Imagine it's 40, 50 years ago, and what you're seeing is not this. What you're seeing is people smoking. It's the same kind of thing. It's an addiction. It's an addiction that makes a lot of people very rich. This addiction, you can see there's a little more, um, obviously, going on. But it's an addiction in terms of tobacco that we came to understand was killing us. And so a lot of people have pulled away. Pulling away from this is a lot harder. But the headline is, Put down your phone. Live longer. Because... We know, and I've talked about this before, but I just keep seeing more and more pieces of this. When we're on these things, the amount of cortisol, which is a chemical that our brain, you know, puts out, that is the main stress. Well, I don't know if the brain puts it out, but the brain gets the idea and says, cortisol, cortisol, we need... And The thing is, is if you're on Twitter or on Facebook, any of those social media platforms, your cortisol levels are going up and up, and in fact, they are sustained in a way that is not normal for our bodies. Cortisol is supposed to be released when, for instance, you know, we're running from uh, a, a lion, and it comes on fast and gives us more strength and our blood pressure's up and we're moving and running and we might, it might help us survive. But that same reaction happens when we're looking at something that pisses us off on, on our phones. And then it stays there and our bodies are just awash in it. In the wild, when cortisol came on, you either got killed or you got away, and then the cortisol levels drop right back down. They don't stay elevated. There's other chemicals that are released because of you know this. Dopamine is another brain chemical um, that actually helps us form habits And addictions, like uh, slot machines, uh, you know, smartphones, and all these apps are created to trigger the release of dopamine, so that we'll keep coming back. We like it when dopamine gets released, right? So we got that dopamine thing hooking us, but then the cortisol thing is dangerous when cortisol is released blood pressure spikes heart rate goes up blood sugar goes up these are life-saving things if you're really in danger they're life-threatening things if you are not really in danger and they've done studies which show unbelievably that your cortisol levels are elevated when you're not even on your phone, when it's sitting next to you. If it beeps at you, there's an immediate upswing in cortisol levels. Chronically elevated cortisol levels have been tied to an increased risk of diabetes, depression, obesity, fertility issues, high blood pressure, heart attack, dementia and stroke. What they suggest is turn off the alerts. Turn off all audible communicate things that you know make your head turn unless there's some that you absolutely refuse to. They also suggest taking a 24-hour Sabbath and on the seventh day and give your body a chance to recover and your head to recover. I am saying this kills. It's definitely shortening our lives. if you're hooked. And all you got to do is walk around and see that everybody, almost everybody, is hooked. Okay, that's it for me. Hey, thank you very much. Why didn't anybody call me today? Oh, because you're watching the ba- Maybe the bar thing got better. I hope so. I'll, 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 I'll catch up later, and I'll see you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 Mm a.m., and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.